0: October 12, 2019 marked the last time that Arizona State has won a game this season, 38-34 against Washington State. It also marks the last time that Arizona State has led in any given contest since then. That was 37 days ago. Out of the 300 minutes of game time since the win against Cal on September 27th, ASU has led the opposition for just 5 minutes and 37 seconds. That incredible stat, courtesy of my friend Brad Denny from 3TV and Speaks of the Devils podcast, just shows you the wash, rinse, repeat cycle that Arizona State is currently in right now. Arizona State has given up a touchdown in the opening drive in the last three games. And as I illustrated in that stat just a couple seconds ago, it's not like the ASU offense has been holding their end of the bargain. So what went wrong this time in a loss to Oregon State last Saturday? And what can Arizona State do to break the cycle with their toughest opponent probably this season looming large Saturday in Sun Devil Stadium. I'll provide my perspective and my answers to what's plaguing right now, Arizona State, in this week's episode of the Devil's Junkies podcast. I was living in a devil town.
1: I didn't
0: know it was a devil town. Oh, Lord, it really brings me down about the devil town. Welcome to Devil Junkies Podcast. I'm your host and devilsitis.com publisher, Hode Rubino. And Sun Devil fans, if you feel like you're trapped in Groundhog Day, I wouldn't blame you one bit. The 35-34 loss to Oregon State exhibited a lot of those disturbing trends that we've seen really for the last handful or so games by the Sun Devils. The Arizona State defense, once again, does not show up at all in the first half. Shows up in the second half, but not only does it put the team greatly behind the so-called eight ball, but now an Arizona State offense, which has its own set of issues, an offensive line that cannot run block well at all in the last few contests, really handcuffing running back you know, Benjamin, who on paper may be the best running back in the conference. But his production has dropped dramatically because of the issues at, at the offensive line. You have a young quarterback like Jaden Daniels, who, granted, had some very impressive fourth quarter comeback drives in the first five, six games of the season. But as of late, you're just asking him to do way too much for a true freshman starting in the most important position on the field. And the offense As hard as they may try in the second half to engineer comebacks are falling short time and time again. But as mentioned, they really have a large deficit that is working against them. And this Arizona State offense is simply not good enough to successfully pick itself off the mat each and every week and recapture some of that magic of comeback wins that it really had an abundance of the month of September, and even a little bit of October as well. As we examine this contest, let's start looking at the Arizona State defense. When you look at Jake Luton, the uh, Oregon State signal caller, 288 yards, four touchdowns, no interceptions, only sacked three times. Not really horrible numbers compared to what we saw other opposing quarterbacks inflict on the Arizona State defense. But nonetheless, certainly not numbers that you want to hang your hat on. What really baffled me quite a bit is that here's Oregon State, a team that averaged 160 yards on the ground coming into this Arizona State contest. And you look at the final box score, and the Beavers only posted 105 yards on the ground, so well below their average. Uh, Ar- Davis Pierce only had... 63 yards. Jamar Jefferson, who torched Arizona State last season for over 250 yards rushing, only had 32 net yards, did score a touchdown. But nonetheless, you would look at this game and say, okay, Arizona State did a great job in their run defense and obviously had some major issues, at least in the first half, defending the pass. But... I really think that Oregon State, watching the Arizona State defense on tape, didn't really think they had to employ their signature effective ground attack and would find a lot of success in the air. I mean, really, for the most part, this Oregon State offense was pretty one-dimensional. True, in the first half, they did have 99 rushing yards, but the 196 yards passing in the first half, that is a stat that, granted, Arizona State, we know, have their issues with their defensive backfield and really the pass rush that puts that much more pressure on the defensive backfield these days. But for the Beavers to have 196 yards passing in the first half, three touchdowns, Luton completing 15 out of 18 passes. I'm not going to say it's a total shocker because we saw the struggles against the quarterbacks for UCLA and USC in the preceding week, so I don't know if it was really astonishing to see this performance by the Sun Devils, but I really thought that this Oregon State offense was going to inflict much more harm on the ground, and having only 99 yards in the first half, and for the entire game, having 105 yards, so only gained six rushing yards in the second half, to have all those stats show up on the box score and still come away with a win, that is definitely an indictment on this Arizona State defense. We talk about the secondary, and again, I, mean, I I think we always need to put the caveat that Arizona State, even though they had better pass rush in this game compared to some previous recent contests, it's still putting... A lot of the onus on the secondary to make plays. And right now, you just don't have good enough a unit to withstand the blows that opposing aerial attacks are inflicting week in and week out. You look at a player like Chase Lucas, the junior cornerback, I thought by and large, has had a, I'm not going to say good stretch as of late, but not someone that you would pinpoint as having a lot of struggles compared to maybe some of his other teammates in the the defensive backfield. And in the first half, it seemed like every time Oregon State had an explosive play in the air, Chase Lucas was on the receiving end of the coverage. Arizona State had to deal with suspensions that I really think hurt them more than anybody would admit. Safety Ashari Croswell actually had to sit out the whole first quarter due to a disciplinary measure linebacker Merlin Robinson, defensive lineman Jermaine Lole, and cornerback Jack Jones all set out the first series. Now, yes, Oregon State was just one more team that was able to score on the Sun Devils in their opening drive, but even when those players were back on the field, it didn't really matter a whole lot. Oregon State scores 28 points in the first half. That's near impossible to come back from unless your offense is able to match the opponent step by step. And we already know by now that's not going to happen. This Arizona State offense is not an explosive unit that can go out there and play arena league football-like, if that makes sense, and just score almost on each and every drive. That simply is not the makeup of this Sun Devil unit. So you have the issues of, of Chase Lucas. You have The suspension of Ashari Quaswell for the first quarter that now forces Kobe Williams, who by far is the best cornerback on this team. I don't think it's really up for debate. Now Kobe Williams has to play safety in lieu of Ashari Quaswell not being on the field. Another starting safety, Cam Phillips, had to sit out this game due to concussion. So suspensions, injuries, really caught up with this Arizona State defensive backfield. Again, I'm not absolving the defensive line by any means. Yes, they had the three sacks, but much like the entire defensive effort for ASU in this four-game losing streak, it shows up mainly in the second half, the epitome of too little, too late. And here we are once again talking about massive, massive defensive struggles for Arizona State. We almost on every down, it doesn't matter how talented the wide receiver is on the other other line, line of scrimmage, but humongous cushions in coverage. I mean, the bump and run is absolutely non-existent with this Arizona State secondary. I mean, if you see a cushion less than five yards, you, you, you probably have to do a double and a triple take because the massive room that opposing wide receivers are given to operate especially with the lack of pass rush, has really been detrimental. Now, I understand the thinking behind that cushion because the last thing you want to do is have an opposing wide receiver who you're trying to jam on the line just blow right by you. And now what maybe would have been a somewhat modest pass, which I know at the end of the day can still lead to a first down, obviously, now becomes a backbreaker, 20, 30, 40-yard pass down the field. Best case scenario, it doesn't result in a touchdown, but nonetheless, something can absolutely break the spirit of this defense. So it's one of those damn if you do, damn if you don't scenarios for Arizona State. And again, not to belabor the point, if you have good pass rush, I think whatever difficulties you have in the secondary, a good pass rush can definitely mask those issues. And right now, that's simply not hyping for the Sun Devils and Oregon State, who does have one of the better offenses in the league. I don't think as good as UCLA or USC, but still an offense that's pretty formidable. And they were really able to have their way with Arizona State in the first half. You give credit to the Arizona State defense in the second half. They're able to buckle down. They're able to do the halftime adjustments. But we're going to ask the same question today that we're going to ha- that we already asked. After a loss to Utah, a loss to UCLA, a loss to USC, why does it take an entire half for this Arizona State defense to start playing good football? In fairness, as much as we talked about this defense making strides from the previous coaching regime, it is only fair that we do point out the facts right now in terms of statistical standings, which are definitely very disturbing. You probably remember under Todd Graham, where Arizona State actually had one of the better rush defenses in the Pac-12. And right now, if you look at NCAA national statistics, Arizona State is ranked 19th in the country, 1 9 in rushing defense, allowing just under, I'm sorry, just over 109 yards. So something you think you'd like to hang your hat on, right? Well, much like the previous coaching regime. That impressive stat when it came to rushing defense had a huge reason behind it. Had a very ugly other side of the coin, if you will. And that is a abysmal ranking in passing defense. Arizona State, which was ranked in 2015, any 20, 2016, dead last in passing defense. Right now, after 10 games, is ranked 115th. In the country, and that's 115th out of 130 FBS teams. What's really even more <laughs> ironic is that there are five, count them five, Pac-12 teams that actually have a worse passing defense than Arizona State. Keep in mind that Arizona State at 115. This is after only they gave up a somewhat modest 288 yards passing to Jake Luton and the Oregon State Beavers, but nonetheless. We talked about this passing defense improving quite a bit in 2018 and definitely the first part of 2019. And right now, if you look at the Pac-12 standings, not a great ranking, but maybe not that bad either being the middle of the pack. but the national standings, 115th in the country. That is an absolute regression to some dark, dark days in Sun Devil fans' minds. So how to fix these issues? I think it's something that the coaching staff is wrecking its brain just as much as Arizona State fans right now in search for any kind of solution. It's really a matter of you're not going to have an effective pass rush. You might as well have more players in coverage and just hope that you can win the numbers game, if you will, having more defensive backs, more defenders in general, cover potential aerial targets out there for any given opponent. Much easier said than done, obviously. Arizona State has played with six defensive backs more than I ever thought they would coming into this season. That hasn't always been effective. Again, you give them credit in the second half, making adjustments. They pitched another fourth quarter shutout, but it is absolutely mind-boggling how much better this defense plays in the second half, how many fourth, court, fourth quarter shutouts they have seemingly almost on a weekly basis and still find themselves in a world of hurt in terms of a four-game losing streak, in terms of a passing defense that among its FBS peers is ranked much lower in the standings that they would care for. So... That's my analysis of the Arizona State defense after the Oregon State game, and just really generally speaking, after 10 games in the season. Let's move on to the offense, and oh yes, that controversial two-point conversion attempt. This is what's great about sports. This is what the greatest thing about sports is. You play to win the game. Hello? You play to win the game. Okay, so I wasn't trying to be overly cheesy, pulling from the archives Herm Edwards' timeless quote from his time when he coached the New York Jets in the NFL. But more or less, all jokes aside, that is the reasoning that Herm Edwards gave for attempting that two point conversion at the end of the game, a play that ultimately was the difference on the scoreboard as Arizona State falls to Oregon State on the road 35 to 34. So, where do I fall on this argument that really has been raging among ASU fans? ever since Saturday night, and I'm sure it's going to go well into this week. Herm Edwards talked about having momentum. And the interesting aspect of that argument is that he felt that the momentum would allow him to take that chance and put the pressure on Oregon State, assuming obviously the two-point attempt is converted successfully, to go down the field and probably try to answer with a field goal. And one aspect that kind of got lost in the mix over here, at least when some were talking about the game, is that Oregon State's field goal kicker is by far the worst in the Pac-12, if not one of the worst in the country, converting only two of seven attempts. So Arizona State was more than happy, if their plan succeeded, needless to say, to put the onus on the Oregon State kicker, to win the game for the Beavers. And even though the game is at home, they, being the ASU coaching staff, had enough confidence that the Beaver field place kicker was going to fall short once again. I can't say that's an unreasonable argument because at the end of the day, stats, especially when you're talking about 10th game of the season, is all you have to go by. So that argument does make sense to some extent. Now, what I asked Herm Edwards in his Monday's press conference is that when he talks about momentum, Why didn't he feel that he had enough momentum on the other side of the coin to tie the game, go into overtime, and have the momentum from the second half, where the Beavers only scored one touchdown, had less than 100 yards of offense, and put your offense on the field that scored 14 points in the second half, again, assuming that they kicked the extra point and not not go for the two-point conversion, and played relatively well, even though scoring less than it did in the first half. But if you're comparing the two offenses side-by-side in the second half, yes, Arizona State had the better offense. I'm not saying by country mile, but did have the better offense. And again, the momentum perception applies here to both sides of the ball for the Sun Devils. And Herm Edwards did not repeat that famous or infamous quote, however you want to see it, from his days in the New York Jets. He says that he did not want to play to tie the game, especially on the road. So that's the thinking that he had. And I don't necessarily disagree with it because I feel that Oregon State, with the pressure that would be put on them if Arizona State were to score that two-point conversion, may may have been prone to make some kind of mistake because they know that they don't have a, a good and capable field goal, field goal kicker at their disposal, so they're thinking touchdown. They're not even. They're probably not even thinking field goal, or they're thinking at the very least to make this as much as a, a cheap a chip shot field goal attempt for a struggling kicker. And when you're trying to gain that many yards, and again, we're assuming that the kickoff would go into the end zone or at least pin the Beavers pretty deep because Arizona State, if you recall. Did try an onside kick after the failed two point conversion, which I don't know if I necessarily agree with that call. But in theory, Arizona State felt that making that two point conversion, again, taking all what had transpired in the second half, would put them in a great position to escape with a precious road win. I mean, heck, a precious win period as you're trying to break what was then a three game losing streak. So I might be in the minority as far as the decision to go for the two-point conversion. I don't know if Arizona State was guaranteed a win in overtime. I know you can look at what did and did not transpire in the second half, and that, at the end of the day, is all you have to go by. But it was far from a guarantee that the Arizona State defense would be able to continue and stop the Oregon State offense effectively in overtime whether that would be in the first, second, or third, or however many possessions Oregon State may have ended up in overtime, and that an Arizona State offense that did have not one but two fumbles in the second half would now be this well-oiled machine that was going to score on however many possessions it needed to score in overtime. So those are at least my arguments for the reasoning that Arizona State had for the two-point conversion attempt. So again, I'm not saying it's an ironclad decision, but I am more understanding, for lack of a better term, as to what the thinking was with the Arizona State coaching staff. And I think the great desire, the natural great desire, I should say, to break a three-game losing streak, knowing that you're doing this on the road and sometimes overtime on the road, doesn't really favor the visitors all that much. I guess if you looked at historical statistics, what have you. So the decision to go for two, at the end of the day, at least for me, was a decision that I think was pretty sound. Again, I'm not going to say it's the best ever decision this coaching staff has made, especially in light of the result. But I, for one, am less critical of it compared to others that render their opinion on this topic. Now, when it comes to the play selection, that's a whole different story. Now I know that hindsight is definitely prevalent when we talk about going for two-point conversion to begin with, and obviously the play selection itself, but I think that all of us watching this two-point conversion attempt can agree that it really was a play that was doomed from the start from succeeding. Now, this is one of those situations where it's much easier to look at a film analysis of this rather than spend 5-10 minutes on a podcast or just a radio interview explaining what happened, what went wrong. And I did exactly that. I do have a feature on my front page, a film analysis of the play selection and execution on this failed two-point conversion. Film analysis is something that here at Devil's Digest we really take a lot of pride in. Uh, we're the only media outlet that does film analysis on ASU's opponent each and every week. And for this week, not only are we going to do a film analysis on the or- Oregon offense, but we also did a analysis piece on this failed two-point conversion. And I think that really, again, more than any, Written piece, let alone audio piece, can really illustrate what exactly went wrong. So I'm going to try to explain as best as I can through the medium of a podcast. But I would definitely encourage folks that have not checked it out, let alone have not subscribed to Devil's Digest, to really take a look at this film analysis, see the level of work that we do at Devil's Digest, and really get a deep understanding through this content what exactly went wrong for Arizona State, and really there were several aspects that went wrong over here. First and foremost, the decision to run the ball rather than throw it or have some kind of trickery in running the ball. So here you have a running back, know Benjamin, who didn't have horrible numbers when you look at the box score, 70 yards, 15 rushing attempts, an average of 4.7. But I think we would all all agree that it definitely was a very, very quiet night for Eno Benjamin. And as I mentioned earlier in the podcast, the issues that the offensive line is having, run blocking, are taking a humongous toll on Eno Benjamin. And I contended in some other content pieces that I did, even leading up to this Oregon State game, that I really feel that mentally it is taking even a bigger toll than it is physically on Eno Benjamin. So you look at a game like Oregon State, as I mentioned, Eno Benjamin had 70 yards for the entire game, 29 in the first half. So really having 41 yards in the second half is not even close to being a productive day by a running back such as Eno Benjamin. So I understand that He's definitely one of the primary playmakers on this team, but on a night where he could not run the ball effectively at all, a lot of it, again, goes on the offensive line, why call that play? Another factor here, if you are going to run you know Benjamin, why do it at a running back toss, which is a slower and longer developing play on such a crucial juncture... Of the game, why do you have a play that running runs to the left side of the line with two true freshmen in tight end Nolan Matthews and linebacker Case Hatch and I don't think we ever saw Case Hatch in any kind of running formation at all this season and here he is two freshmen at all blocking on a play that we knew more than likely it was going to determine the game's fate. So why do you have all these elements in play? You also look at the film, or I should say the clip, of this two-point conversion, and you have Brandon Ayuk, who had an outstanding night once again, 173 yards receiving, 10 receptions, had 293 all-purpose yards. You have him isolated one-on-one on the other side of the line, on the weak side of the defense, I should say, where there were less blockers, why not take your chance throwing the ball to him, better yet doing that with play action? I mean, if if it is a running play because of the heavy set, because of the extra blockers that Arizona State brought, and Oregon State is totally expecting you know Benjamin to run the ball, why do the predictable move over here rather than run a play action to a red-hot wide receiver who has one-on-one coverage with an Oregon State defensive back. I know some suggested that, and I think Herm Edwards is actually one of those folks that suggested this, that perhaps you would have Jaden Daniels run the ball himself off of a play action. Well, I think with his knee being less than 100%, obviously the same knee that prevented him from playing against USC the week before, I don't even know if his ankle that has been bothering him for weeks now, is fully healed anyway. Did you really want to take that chance with Daniels? Probably not. So I know that that's one less option that you have at your disposal if you're not going to have a very good running quarterback execute such an important play. But again, there's no trickery. There's no deception at all on this play. And I'm not saying that every play that you run in a course of four quarters should be deceptive in nature. But if there's any time to really try at least to ca- to catch a defense off guard, this is the play to do it. And if you're running Case ha- case Hatch across the formation from right to left, and you're running the ball to the left side of the line, again, having two true freshmen <laughs> try to block players that are much more experienced than than them, on such a crucial play, really makes zero sense. So the decision to go for two, I'm okay with that. Maybe I'm in the minority with that opinion, but I'm okay with that. But the play selection by Rob Likens, in my help of opinion, was definitely a faulty one and offered no creativity, offered a situation where you really losing the numbers game, if you will. And and I understand that it ultimately really was senior offensive tackle Roy Hemsley who was the first one to allow an Oregon State defender to come at You know Benjamin. And it wasn't really one of the freshman duel that I mentioned earlier. But nonetheless, it really was a play that even before it ran, you could tell that okay, this is not gonna result in a successful outcome for Arizona State. And when you have such a controversial a such uber significant decision this is definitely not the play that you want to run so again this i go into much more detail in my film analysis on our front page at devil's and i would encourage you if you haven't seen it already to really check it out and that really explains what went wrong on so many levels with this play for the sun devils okay so now that i gave you my opinion on the two-point conversion In terms of the decision itself, in terms of the execution or lack thereof, let's talk about other aspects of this Arizona State offense. So, even though it was a slow start by the Arizona State defense, per usual, unfortunately, I thought that the Arizona State offense was nearly matching Oregon State stride for stride. It would only make sense that one of the worst defenses in the Pac-12 would have a hard time keeping with the Arizona State offense which is definitely not a juggernaut by any means but at the same time definitely good enough to pile some points on this type of unit. Now, the most disturbing aspect over here and I did talk about it early in the podcast that one of the worst rush defense units not only in the Pac-12 but the entire country giving up 192 yards on average for Arizona State to Muster a measly 74 yards, and I understand the sacks by that Jaden Daniels did incur, and there were four of them, do factor in there. But still, for Arizona State, not to find Pedro on the ground against a team like Oregon State is absolutely inexcusable. And I understand you have two freshmen starting on the offensive line, and when I say two freshmen, I really should put the caveat that Roy Hemsley, the senior. Did play quite a bit on Saturday. Uh, Left tackle Adaris Henderson uh, suffered an injury during the game. but It seemed to be an arm injury. I I don't know what his availability is for this week. But still, even with all the issues the front five for ASU was having, I would like to think that Oregon State gave you a prime opportunity to cure all those run-blocking ills that you were having. I mean, this Beaver defense was nowhere in caliber compared to Utah, compared to USC, and even UCLA, which really has a better run defense than some people will give him credit. So having your ground attack halted against those Pac-12 foes, I guess you're going to have to live with that. But against Oregon State, that was absolutely demoralizing, I thought, for the offense. And it seemed like Rob Likens much like the USC game was not trying to run the ball early and often at all, putting more onus on a quarterback, and here's Jaden Daniels, with at the, the end of the day is still a true freshman, and I understand played in a ton of games up until this point, really in each and every game aside from the USC contest, but nonetheless, you're just putting, I feel, a lot of undue pressure on, on a young signal caller when you have a running back such as Eno Benjamin, which you might have only for two, three more games if you're lucky because I can't see him sticking around for his senior year. So to not utilize Benjamin in a high volume capacity, if you will, is still a mistake. And again, I understand this offensive line is not blocking nearly at the level it did in 2018. But when you're facing a unit that gives up 192 yards, you don't think that this is the week you could break out out of your funk? That is a huge, huge head-scratcher for me. Now, to Arizona State's credit, they did pass the ball pretty well in this game. Now, you can point to the four sacks that Jaden Daniels incurred. One of those sacks did result in a lost fumble. But 24 out of 36, 334 yards, three touchdowns, no interceptions. This was a good return to the lineup for for Jaden Daniels. Like I said, he did enough in the first half for Arizona State not to fall that much behind. Obviously, the 63-yard punt return by Brandon Ayuk in the in the uh, first half, second quarter to be exact, definitely helped the offense not to be in such a hole that it'd be hard to dig out of. But the offense did only score 14 points, really, I guess 13 to be exact, because of the failed two-point conversion. The most disappointing aspect to me is that here's Arizona State deferring the coin toss every time they win it. And the offense doesn't always respond the way you want them to getting the first possession of the second half and scoring, if not a touchdown, even a field goal. Arizona State actually had two consecutive three and outs to begin the second half. The third third possession was a fumble. So this goes back to the whole momentum argument. Did the Arizona State offense really have enough momentum that you felt comfortable them winning a game in overtime? I think that argument is somewhat flawed. Did they play better offensively than Oregon State in the second half? Yes, you can make that argument, but that's really not saying much when you're comparing yourself to a Beaver unit that had under 100 yards of offense. Because here you are at Arizona State, you look at the drives in the second half, punt, punt, fumble, touchdown, punt, fumble, touchdown. I mean, that is not an enjoyable film session for any team to watch when you look at the futility of those possessions in the last two quarters of a game. So the Arizona State offense definitely had its issues in the second half. Maybe you can even argue played a better first half where they did not have any turnovers and were able more or less to keep pace with Oregon State. So the deficit that they were working with in the second half was not instrumentable and was something that was definitely in an arm, in arm's length to overcome. So we talk about Brandon Ayuk and the stellar game that he had, and you look at his season stats, and going back to the preseason question that we all were wondering about, can Brandon Ayuk effectively replace the production of Nikhil Harry? And right now, with two games left, Brandon Ayuk has 964 yards, receiving seven touchdowns. Nikhil Harry, who again, remember, played 12 games and not 13 last season because he did skip the ball game to get ready for the NFL draft, had 1,088 yards and nine touchdowns. So it's conceivable that Brandon Ayuk could eclipse the number of yards that Nikhil Harry had this week against Oregon and may, I would say, match or come one touchdown short of Nikhil Harry's nine touchdowns in 2018. And, and and obviously Brandon Ayuk will also have an opportunity in the Territorial Cup to end the regular season to have a shot at eclipsing those numbers. So I felt that Brandon Ayuk could come very close to replacing Nikhil Harry, and even that somewhat conservative point of view is proving to be wrong. And anybody that thought that Ayuk... Had no chance of matching Harry's numbers, let alone eclipsing him, is obviously proven wrong right now. Brandon Ayuk is a special, special wide receiver. And in terms of best two-year players in the Sun Devil program, Brandon Ayuk is definitely going to go down as one of the better ones. I should have mentioned that earlier in the podcast that Brandon Ayuk, due to his 63-yard punt return for a touchdown, was named Pac-12 Special Teams Player of the Week. And in that game against Oregon State, had 293 all-purpose yards. So great, great outing by the senior. Unfortunately for him, comes in a very bitter loss. But uh, nonetheless, uh, that should not overshadow what Brandon nuke was able to achieve this year. And speaking of overshadow, I think you has been overshadowing uh, Frank Darby, the junior wide receiver, who the last two, three games, I think, might maybe playing his best football ever at Arizona State against Oregon State last Saturday. 66 yards on three receptions and a touchdown. So Frank Darby is really proving more and more that the unrealized potential that we've seen probably in the first two years playing for the Sun Devils, is starting slowly but surely to to be realized. I'm sure he's also enjoying the extra attention that opposing defenses are putting on somebody like Brandon Ayuk. But nonetheless, Frank Darby is somebody who I feel is being more and more a significant part of this offense. Uh, Two other um, things to mention over here on this side of the ball, uh, Kyle Williams Only had three receptions for 38 yards, but for the first time this year, we saw him on game day lining up as a running back and actually had four carries for 30 yards, so I thought he was very effective in that role. Another preseason narrative that we had was, can Arizona State find a capable number two running back on the team that can help lessen the load from Eno Benjamin? And I think that finally, even though it's actually a wide receiver, First and foremost, but finally, Arizona State found somebody in Kyle Williams that can carry out that role. And I would fully expect Williams to not only play wide receiver, but also to reassume his role in the backfield against Oregon this week and against Arizona the week after. And when it comes to the uh, running game struggles, I should mention that Eno Benjamin did have a fumble loss that went for a touchback in the fourth quarter at the time that could have tied the contest for Arizona State and obviously maybe render moot the whole notion of uh, trying to go for a two-point conversion later on in that period. So that just another example of the rough, rough season that know Benjamin is having and really a reflection of the overall struggles of the ground attack for the Sun Devils. Arizona State, after 10 games, is ranked 119th among all FBS schools in rushing yards. That is a stat that I simply did not expect to see at all from the Sun Devils, especially this late in the year. I knew there were going to be some issues with the offensive line due to the youth. I thought that those issues would manifest themselves more in pass protection, sacks yielded rather than run blocking. But sure enough, not only is Arizona State struggling in sacks allowed, ranked 96 in the country, but run blocking and not allowing, you know, Benjamin to come even close to being effective as he was in 2018 has been a huge, huge issue for this Arizona State offense. And not to look too much ahead, I mean we're definitely gonna devote some podcast for that topic in specific, but with Eno Benjamin, a virtual guarantee to declare to the NFL draft and skip his senior year with an offensive line that's only going to get younger. Even if they do get a graduate transfer, is only going to get younger in 2020. You just (laughs) wonder how much more struggles this front five is going to have in pass blocking and run blocking. And that's really something that to look forward to in 2020, how much will that handcuff this offense from really realizing its potential? Because it does have some good playmakers returning. It's going to have some good playmakers in this recruiting class, I believe. But if this offensive line cannot play at an acceptable level, then it's it's going to be a huge uphill climb. So to wrap up the podcast, uh, let's next look at Arizona State's upcoming opponent, and how do we see this 2019 regular season ending, and will it actually end in a couple weeks, or can Arizona State sneak into a bowl? That's up next. Here's one stat that I saw online that really caught me by surprise, if I'm being honest about it. Since 2013, Arizona State is a perfect 7-0 against top 15 teams at home. And here they have a matchup with Oregon, who at the time of this podcast is ranked 6 in the playoff rankings. I don't know if that ranking would change come Tuesday evening or not, but nonetheless will definitely still be another top 15 team that the Sun Devils will face in Tempe on Saturday, and you wonder, can they keep that perfect record alive against Oregon? Well, when you look at the sheer talent that the Ducks have, the gaudy numbers that are putting up all year long, it's not hard to understand why the Ducks are a 15-point favorite on the road in Tempe against Arizona State. One of my customers at devilsdigest.com, Lobo Jangles, pointed out that Oregon has held six teams without scoring a touchdown, while on the flip side, Arizona State could not hold five of their opponents to date from scoring a touchdown on their first offensive drive. So you just look at a multitude of factors here, and it's definitely not boding well for Arizona State. First and foremost, I know it's stating the painfully obvious, can this Sun Devil defense do anything to even slow down Oregon just a little bit? Because the Oregon defense is a very formidable unit, and I know it's easy for them to get overshadowed by Justin Herbert, one of the best quarterbacks in the nation, a top five selection at worst in the 2020 NFL Draft. We look at uh, Verdell, the, the the running back, the, the very talented, stable uh, wide receivers they have there in Eugene. And the AC defense is going to face an opponent that I don't think they faced all year long in terms of a balanced offense, first and foremost, and just a unit that is uh, that is absolutely loaded with talent from top to bottom. I know that maybe earlier in the year we thought that Utah may, may be the toughest opponent for Arizona State. And even when you look at that game today, uh, I don't think Arizona State played horrible football, especially not on defense in that game because Utah is just not the team that would usually just explode on you from – from kickoff until final whistle, but Oregon is a whole different animal in that regard. And the Arizona State defense, who is definitely not coming into this game on a high note, is gonna have their hands full and then some, uh, trying to stop this offense. You look at the other side of the ball, total defense 15th in the nation, total yards passing allowed, number 37. Rushing defense, number 11. I mean, you talk about a suffocating unit for any offense that it faces, and the Arizona State offense, I feel it, you know, is not coming off a horrible game against Oregon State, but there's no doubt in my mind that the rush, the rushing attack is going to have to improve quite a bit from what we saw against Oregon State and really I'd say from what we saw against both L.A. schools the last few weeks as well, to have any chance at at winning this game. So really, either side of the ball is just pick your poison, a defense that will absolutely stop you in the tracks time and time again, and an offense which might put some video game out there to shame with the amount of yards and the amount of points that they would fill up a box score in a New York minute. So, you know, this is one game that it's really easy to see Arizona State dropping to under 500 for the first time this year, suffering their fifth loss in a row. And not that I'm asking anybody to overlook this game, but just put it in realistic perspective and realize that if you're looking for an opponent to finally break your losing streak against more than likely, and that's putting it kindly, it won't be Oregon this weekend. And you should have your eyes set to the Territorial Cup in Arizona a week from Saturday at Sun Devil Stadium. And that's a contest I could see Arizona State winning. Not that Arizona State is in a great place To begin with, but I think the problems in Arizona are perhaps somewhat more significant than what Arizona State is experiencing these days. And that contest, certainly in comparison to Oregon, will provide a a prime opportunity for Arizona State to be bowl eligible, to not have a losing regular season record, which I know are not exactly the goals that the more critical fans, and maybe even the coaching staff themselves, have put forth for the team. But nonetheless, that's exactly what lies ahead for ASU right now. When ASU went 5-1, and one, I said that my 7-5 and five preseason prediction was in serious jeopardy. And uh, boy, was I wrong on that uh, narrative. Uh, I, Arizona State would have to pull the upset of upsets against Oregon, and then hope that they can come down to earth pretty quickly and and beat their rival in the game, which, as we know from decades and decades previously, anything can happen, and not uncommon at all to see the better team lose that contest. So that's it's going to take for Arizona State uh, to make me look good in my seven and five. Preseason prediction, and no, I'm not holding my breath on that. But I still can see this team finishing six and six again. A loss to Oregon, a win against Arizona, that should squeeze them into a bowl. Maybe it's even locally here, the Cheez It Bowl, at uh, at Chase Field, the home of the Arizona Diamondbacks. So, ASU fans that want a chance to uh, see the Sun Devils in postseason won't have to travel far at all to uh, witness that. But nothing really is a given uh, with, with this team right now. And you can perhaps afford to have a slow start against a team like Oregon State and still have a chance to win a game at the end. On offense, you you played one of the weakest defenses in the Pac-12 and was able to put up a sizable amount of points yourself in the first half to have a chance of a comeback. But When you look at a team like Oregon, it's a team that is known to get on their opponents early and big in contest, and their defense, as mentioned before, you you look at those numbers, top 40 all across the board in the major categories nationally, that is definitely not a parameter that's conducive for success, but we're going to... Analyze this game more and more all week long at at devilsdigest.com. I would encourage everybody who is not already a premium subscriber to really check us out. As mentioned earlier, not only do we already have on our front page extensive film analysis of the two-point conversion attempt in the Oregon State game. Suffice to say that you're listening to this podcast, that's one topic that you talked quite a bit in the last 48, 72 hours and... We offer you some great analysis of that play, but you have to be a premium subscriber to view that. And uh, as I said, later on this week, we will have a film analysis of the Oregon offense. Justin uh, Herbert, one of the best quarterbacks in the nation. What does he do well? What are some of the challenges and perhaps opportunities that await the Arizona State defense? We're going to delve into that as as well. Uh, Interviews with uh, Arizona State's coordinators and players, all throughout the week, various preview pieces, everything is going to be right there on our front page at devils.com, so please check us out. And a lot of recruiting coverage has already been taking place on my website in the last few weeks, last few months. Some exciting news that I believe is really coming down the pipe for Arizona State, and believe it or not, a week from yesterday is going to be the start of the early signing period. So, we're going to have a lot of recruiting content between now and then. And as mentioned, I think there's some be some really interesting developments for Arizona State in the upcoming weeks even though the season is not exactly a stellar campaign, not what we all expected in some regards. Nonetheless, I think there's some really intriguing recruiting developments that uh, could fall Arizona State's way. And if you're a subscriber to devilsdiatist.com, you will stay on top of all that news in the days and weeks to come. So that will just wrap it up for this episode of the Devils Junkies podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in. Enjoy the rest of the week, and we will talk to you again after the Oregon game next week. I was living in a devil town. I didn't know it was a devil town. Oh Lord, it really brings me down about the devil town